Good morning, Grace. Um, our scripture this morning is Genesis chapter 49, uh, starting in verse 29. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, The children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, 
But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Hey, good morning. That was pretty weak. Well, it's bitter, bittersweet that this is the second to last sermon I'll, I'll preach in this series. It's been a good and life-changing ride for me, and I know for many of you as well. Many of you have shared with me ways God has worked in you through this, and I'm thankful for that. I look forward, I, I still, the, the wrap-up, the final sermon is either going to be next week or after Christmas. Pray, pray for wisdom there, and if you would pray for wisdom, as I one of the hardest things to do is to start preaching through a new book of the Bible. It, it just takes a lot of work to get my head around it and understand the whole of it and get get prepared to preach the first sermon. And so I'll be doing that. Pastor Mike's going to preach two weeks in December at some point to help me get ready to preach through James. So start reading through James. Uh, we've been in the Old Testament for several years now. We're going to come back to the new. Uh, pray for that. Read over it as many times as you can in December, and then at the beginning of January, we'll start there. Um, uh, it, but whether next week or in several weeks, when I do the wrap-up sermon on Genesis, I want to answer the question that's been in front of us for as long as we've been in Genesis. It's right down here. And so I want to answer plainly from the text, and even from what God has done through our time together in it, what is our place in God's plan. So kids, I want you to think about that. Where where do you fit into the big story of God? See if you can come up with an answer for that before next week. So for now, let's turn our attention to the final passage. This is the last pa- uh, sermon I'll preach on the text of Genesis. Uh, it's the last passage in the book. Uh, and in it, we'll see there's there's four scenes. Hopefully you were able to pick them out yourself as Shanna read through it. But the four scenes are Jacob's last request, and then there's a longer one where he passes away and the whole scene around his burial. The third scene is this post-funeral meeting that took place between Joseph and his brothers. And then the, the fourth and final scene is Joseph's last words and death in the close of the book. Scenes one, two, and four deal with the death of the patriarchs, and they're significant in that they highlight the fact that these men died still hoping in God. Through all, all that they'd been through, hardship, blessing, they died hoping in God. The, 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 those three scenes are significant because of that. But the, the main thrust, the main thrust of the passage, and in many ways the main thrust of the whole book, is found in the third scene in the short dialogue between Joseph and his brothers. In it, the amazing sovereign grace of God is revealed in a more explicit way than it ever had been in Genesis. We've seen it in action, the sovereign grace of God, that God reigns over all things and he's working for the good of his people. We've seen it in different stories throughout Genesis many times. But in Genesis 50, 20, 
Joseph pulls back the curtain and gives us a view of what's behind the curtain, revealing God's relationship to sin and suffering in a remarkable way, in such a way that we cannot help but to be filled with awe and hope and peace. So let, let's pray. Let's pray that God would be have been pleased uh, through our time in Genesis or by our time in Genesis, and then even in this passage, he would fill us with awe and hope and peace. God, thank you very much for your word, for all of it. Thank you for the beginning and the end and everything in between. Thank you that as Pastor Mike helped us to see this morning and as the Berea teachers have been helping us see for the last several weeks, your word is all one great story, the greatest story. We thank you that there are there are big epics like the Lord of the Rings and and these huge stories with these huge worlds and everything working. And we're, we're thankful for those because they give us a little taste of what we have in your word. Those are fun and rooted in truth and stir our minds and our imaginations. And we wonder what if and we long to see ourselves in certain places in that story or imagine ourselves as certain characters. And, and yet, God, the reason there's so much power in stories like that is because they tap into the power of this one true story, this one great story of all of history and time and space that puts us in our place, shares with us our place and purpose and all that is. Thank you that we get the beginning of that in Genesis, the very foundation of all of that, the first promises made that our Captain Jesus. Please stir us in every way that we ought to be stirred uh, as we look back over Genesis on our own and as we take a look together at the final section this morning. We love you, but that's because you first loved us. We trust in you, and as we'll see this morning, that's because you gave us that gift. I pray that in all ways we would surrender ourselves to you, the one to whom all belongs anyway. <laughs> we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. First scene. It's brief, and in it we find Jacob's last request. His last words on earth were a reiteration of something he had already said. It wasn't something new and especially profound. It was something that just a few chapters earlier, at the end of 47, He'd, he'd said, namely, that he wanted to be buried in Canaan along with his grandfather and father and wife. The two important things for us to see are that God was faithful to Jacob and to the promises that he had made to him through his death. His entire life, God was never faithless to his promises. He was faithful to Jacob through his death and that Jacob was faithful to God even at his death. When everything is on the line and he was faithful even still. For three generations now, God had been perfectly faithful to his covenant people. Every promise he made, he had kept or was beginning to keep. Not a single promise did he break. He had rescued them from every trial and blessed them in miraculous ways. And Jacob, in looking to be buried in the promised land, remember he's in Egypt with all of its comforts and blessings in looking to be buried in the promised land. He was making it clear that his hope in his final moments was truly in the covenant promises of God. 
In faith, he looked beyond the immediate significant blessing that was already his in Egypt forward to the better promises of God. So Grace, would you remember two things from this? First, would you remember again, Genesis has helped us to see this, but would you remember again that this is not your home? We've seen this again and again and again, but perhaps never more clearly than right here. Jacob, in many ways, had everything the world had to offer. Think, think, what are you, what are you working for? What are you working towards? If your job quadrupled your pay and and in a, a, a year or two, you could have all the money you need for the rest of your life. What would you want? Would you want floors that were all heated on perfectly level ground? And, and, and would you want a home that was a, a fortress from all the things, uh, all attacks, emotional and physical and healthy kids? And Jacob had all of that, and yet his hope was beyond all of that. He could have died peacefully and remained in Egypt with most, if not all, the blessings this world has to offer. But his eyes were beyond this. Would you remember that? Would you, would you keep in mind that this is not your home? Our highest blessing and true home are in God's presence. Jacob knew this, and he knew, get this, remember this, write this down, tell it to somebody this week. Our highest blessing and truest home are in God's presence. Jacob knew this, and he knew, therefore, that death was simply the door to those things. That changes your life if you believe that. Here's the second thing from this first scene I want you to remember. It's one truth in two clauses. I'm going to tell you the the whole thing. I'm going to give you a silly example, and then I'm going to explain both of those biblically a little bit more. So, it sounds longer than it is. Here's, here's the statement. You must continually hope in God to be saved, even while acknowledging that continually hoping in God is a gift from God. So let me say that again, give you an illustration, root it more deeply in the text. Would you remember that you must continually hope in God to be saved? We see this in Jacob, even while acknowledging that continually hoping in God is a gift from God. So here's the silly story. When I was a kid, we we lived, it was like a mile or less from the county fairgrounds. We'd go as a family most years. And I remember one year in particular, in fact, probably my most vivid memory of the Monroe County Fair uh, involved this, uh, it was one of the, those carnival game deals where you pay a few bucks and you, you try to do it. And if you, you get this crazy oversized prize, whatever it was. Uh, and so for whatever reason, I decided I needed to do this particular one. And maybe you've seen it, but it was a, a rope ladder on a 45 degree angle and each end was on a swivel. So it would spin like this, it would shake and all this stuff. And, uh, I, I decided I needed to do that. I don't remember how much it costs, but I got on it. I I had this sense that I would be able to do it. Otherwise, I suppose, why would I have paid the money? But as I climbed on it and began to climb up, it it seemed easier than it should have been. I remember thinking, I, I thought I might be able to do this, but this feels easier than I thought. It felt like I, it still wobbled a lot, and I, and I actually had to climb. If I didn't climb, I wouldn't make it up. And, and if I didn't balance at least somewhat, I wouldn't have made it up. But, but man, I... Felt like I could fall, but but not really. It felt like I just wasn't going to fall. And got to the top, rang the bell, 
Well, it turns out my dad had put his foot on the, on the bottom rung, which canceled out my opportunity to get a prize. I was kind of frustrated by that, to be honest. But that's a diff- different story for a different day. But, but here's the thing. Uh, in some ways, we see in this passage, and even more in the other scenes, that is the nature of life in Christ. That is the nature of life under the sovereign grace of God. So let me say, let me root it a little bit more deeply in Scripture. There's this union between us needing to obey and working and making real choices and being responsible for them in God's amazing sovereign grace over all of it. So that'll become clearer throughout the different scenes. But let me say this in a few ways. If you do not persevere in your faith, you will not go to heaven. If you do not persevere in your faith, you will not go to heaven. Matthew 24, 13. Same thing, first, same part of the first clause. You are saved by grace through having faith, not by having had faith. Same, same principle. You are saved by grace through having faith, not having had faith in Jesus. Same thing again. Uh, you must always be working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2.12. One more, one more time, same first part of the clause. You must fight the good fight and finish the race if you are to receive the reward. 2 Timothy 4, or no, yeah, 2 Timothy 4.7. We need to remain faithful to Christ. We need to remain faithful. There is nothing you can have done in the past that keeps you united to Christ. It is continual hope in Jesus, okay? That's the first part of the clause. Here's the second. At the same time, you must do all of that, fight for all of that, hope in all of that, in the knowledge that it is God who does these things in you, who keeps you in Jesus, Romans 8.30. The great promise of God is that it is is that it is by grace through faith that you are saved in both of those things. The faith and the saving are gifts of God. That's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Same thing again. The very God who began the good work of salvation in you, the kind that you need to persevere in, the, the kind that you need to keep hoping in, the very God who began the good work of salvation in you has promised to see it through to completion. That's Philippians 1.6. So we see both. We see both in this first scene in Jacob. Would you remember these, Grace? Jacob was faithful to God until the end because God was faithful to Jacob until the end. And so will he be to all who trust in Jesus. That's the first scene. Here's the second. That's of Jacob's death and burial. It is curious. It's interesting and curious in a number of ways. I, I left... I read it over and over, and, and the main thing I left with was curiosity. It, it was interesting. It's interesting that Jacob seemed to know somehow when he would die almost to the minute. I don't know how that happens. Text doesn't tell us, but he knew it. It's curious. It's interesting. It's interesting that his death was spoken of so briefly. It's just, a, it's like barely a sentence, and he's gone. The funeral and all that gets more, but the actual death, there's no... It's just there. It's just done. That's it. It's curious. 
It's interesting that of all of his sons, Joseph alone is mentioned as mourning his death. It's interesting how Egyptian everything was. This was a family that was meant to be set apart. This was a unique family of the promise, but almost everything about what happens after his death is Egyptian, even though they were not participants in the covenant. It's interesting that it is the Egyptians who are said to have mourned for 70 days and wept. It is interesting that the Canaanite response, they, the, this procession with some of Jacob's family, but a lot of Egyptians, made their way into Canaan, and it is interesting that the Canaanites' main takeaway from this whole thing to the seven days of mourning was about how great the Egyptians' lament was. Again, interesting and curious. But above all, though, it's interesting that Joseph promised. Here's the thing I think we really need to see, is that Joseph promised to and did return to Egypt instead of remaining in the promised land. So they they left Egypt, this big caravan, to go to the place of the promise. But he promised to and then did, in fact, go back to Egypt. What's up with that? <laughs> That's curious. That's interesting to me. Well, apparently, we'll, we'll see more at the end of this passage and then more if you continue reading on into Exodus. Kids, if you, if you don't know where this story goes, the first uh, words in Exodus, the very next book, will, it takes quite a turn. But, but apparently, as we'll see at the end of this passage and into the next book, this was of God. <laughs> this wasn't just some selfish, random choice that Joseph made. This was of God. God had determined that the time for this family to take over the promised land had not yet come. There was more for God to do in and through them in Egypt. So let me just say a couple words about that. We know now that God kept this family, caused them to return back out of the promised land into Egypt for, for, <laughs> it's, it's pretty remarkable, in order that he might free them from slavery, that they would become enslaved and then free them from slavery in the most miraculous way imaginable. We know that now. They didn't know that then. We know it now. Likewise, we know now that he did so in order to put his unmatched power and glory on display. As you read through the rest of the Old Testament, God's main, the main way God identifies himself as the God who delivered you out of the land of Egypt, out of your slavery. This was, this was, a mark God would put on this people that would carry for centuries. When God wanted to refer back to how mighty and powerful he was, he described the exodus that he led them on out of Egypt. So let me, let me say that again through the story itself. Jacob's children would continue to know prosperity in Egypt for a little while longer. Joseph would lead the party back into Egypt, and for a time they would know prosperity for a bit yet in Egypt. Then they would know centuries of increasingly oppressive enslavement in that same place and under that same people. It would get miserable for them. And then by God's mighty hand, through the blood of a lamb, God would rescue them from their captive, from their captives. Their captors. And all of that was according to God's design, again, that he might show his might and power and glory above all other gods. And his ability, his unique ability to save his people. 
here's the thing, Grace, get this, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring it to us in just a second. The Israelites, these children of Abraham, these children of Isaac, these children of Jacob needed to feel the true depths of their powerlessness in their enslavement in order that they might fully or more fully appreciate the glorious rescue of God. And all of that, once again, is a physical picture. Again, if you were in Berea, we talked about this this morning, but all of that was going to be an eternal physical picture of what Jesus, Judah's son, would do spiritually one day. And so it is for you and for me. Why does God allow you to know such a wide array of blessing and hardship? Why can you... Why can you know such high highs and such low lows? Why does God lead you through those things? Why does he allow us to know such ups and such downs? Why does he bring us through such victories and defeats? He does so because we, like Jacob, must come to know the height of God's glory along with the depth of our sin and rebellion against him. He does so that we, like Jacob, might come to know our own powerlessness to do anything good apart from God's help or to do anything about the enmity which our sin has brought upon us in relation to God. He needs us to see that all good things come from him, that nothing is outside of his power and ability. He's glorious beyond measure and that we've sinned against him and rebelled and we're powerless to bring those two things together on our own. That's remarkable. That is kind of God. It stings sometimes. It hurts. (laughs) But it is an act of God's kindness. And he does so that we might truly appreciate our need for the gracious blood sacrifice he would provide for us in Jesus. Third scene. As I mentioned in the beginning, the heart of this passage is found in this third scene, which records just this brief, it's pretty short. Imagine it only took a few minutes. But it's earth-shattering, this interaction between Joseph and his brothers after their father's death and burial. Let's read it again. Look at uh, Genesis 50, 15. I want this fresh in our minds. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back. I mean, the idea is sort of that maybe our father was was what was holding back this dam of his anger. He seemed to have forgiven us. He, he seemed to have gotten over this, but maybe really what it was was our, our father was holding this back. And so it may be that he will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, hey, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. As I, as, as I reflected on this passage, one of the most significant in the whole Bible, as I, as I prayed and processed this throughout the week, five, five things, just five things. Number one, 
It was Joseph's hope in God. I want you to imagine your hope in God. Picture your own hope in God. Picture the God of your hope and the hope you have in God. And ask yourself this. It was Joseph's God, understanding of God, and hope in God that led him to weep over this presentation. To forgive rather than seek vengeance. It was holy in his power to execute vengeance on these guys. Third, to leave justice ultimately to God. Fourth, to trust in God's goodness and good plans through his brother's evil. And fifth, to provide for the very brothers who mistreated him so severely. Let me, let me just say a little bit about each of those things. It is significant that Joseph's brothers were probably lying to Joseph. I don't know if you picked up on that, but they were probably lying to him about the report of their father's words. We we don't know this for sure, but there's no record of Jacob telling the 11 to tell Joseph to forgive them. And there's no reason why Jacob wouldn't have told this directly to Joseph while he was with him, telling his final words to him. With that, along with the treacherous backdrop that the brothers' previous sins had created, it's really remarkable that in this request and through this request, that Joseph's first response to their presentation was to weep. It doesn't tell us exactly why he did or what was under it. We can only surmise that it was the result of some combination over the fresh grief of the loss of their father, remembering the pain he had to have call to mind the pain of their betrayal as they're on this journey and they sold him into slavery. And it has to have been some combination of the death of their father, the fresh remembrance of this betrayal and hardship he'd endured at their hands, his, his amazement, his amazement at the miraculous rescue, God's the way God miraculously rescued him from prison and rose him to second over Egypt the longing for his brothers to know the kind of hope in God that he knew. It had to have been some combination of all of that. Regardless, the main point for us to see is the power of his hope in God. Of all the other possible responses he might have had, first he wept. This could only come from a humbled heart hoping in God. And that forces us to consider how we respond when others mistreat us. Stop for a minute, would you? Would you stop? Remember the last time you were mistreated. Remember the last time someone acted towards you in a way that wasn't right or good. Think about that. Maybe it was small, maybe it was big, but draw that to mind. And in light of this passage, ask yourself, what kind of God did Joseph believe believe in that would allow that would love him enough? What kind of God did Joseph believe in that would love him enough to forgive him so thoroughly? What kind of God was it that would forgive Joseph of all of his sins against God? What kind of God was that? And what kind of hope in that God would hold back, would hold, <laughs> hold back the, this, any other emotion and, and, having weeping be his response. It forces us to test the genuineness of our hope in God by considering carefully how it shapes our response, not mainly in times of comfort, but in times of, res- of distress. Is your first response to the sins of otherness, others tenderness flowing from your trust in God's goodness? 
When you're mistreated, is that the first thing that happens inside of you? If not, maybe reconsider the nature of your God and the hope you have in him. Here's the second one. The second thing that struck me is is that Joseph chose to forgive rather than harbor bitterness. Once he determined that his brother's repentance, remember he put them through a number of tests by God's design to test their repentance for their own sake and also for his. And as it showed itself to be genuine, there is not a single hint that his forgiveness of them was anything other than complete. As we noted earlier, Joseph was wronged in ways that go beyond what most of us will ever know. Whatever wrong you've endured, it probably isn't close to the extent of the wrongs that he endured. Think about that for a minute. This means that he would have been tempted towards bitterness or some other form of unrighteous anger beyond what most of us will ever know. And yet Joseph's hope in God, the nature of his God and the nature of his hope in God, in knowledge of the undeserved forgiveness that God had given him, had extended to him and then through him in order that he might forgive his brothers thoroughly. Again, perhaps you've been hurt deeply. I know many of you have. In light of this passage, ask yourself again, what kind of God do you believe in? What kind of God do you believe in that would set his love upon you such that while we, you are still a sinner, Christ died for you? What kind of God do you believe in? Is it that kind? And what kind of hope do you have in him? Is it this kind? Is that your God? Is that your love? Is that your hope? The third one is that Joseph's first words after his brother's plea were these. Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? When others sin against us, it is so easy, Grace, to take our eyes off of God and consider our situation mainly on a horizontal level. To take our eyes off ver- vertically off of God and look only horizontally. It is so easy to do that. It is not to say that being sinned against is a small thing. That's not. But it, <laughs> but it is to say that it is a relatively small thing when you look vertically first. Whatever sin has been committed against you, it's not to say it's small on a horizontal level. Oftentimes it isn't. It is to say, though, that it's relatively small when you first look vertical at your own sins against God. That's hard to hear. Listen carefully, Grace. This is the heart of the gospel. No matter what anyone has done against you, it isn't within a billion miles of what you've done against God. That doesn't cancel out their sin against you, but it does dramatically shape the reshape the perspective with which you see it. Just as this God-centered perspective drove out bitterness from Joseph, it also drove out the desire for vengeance. As we saw last week, that belongs to God, not to us. With his eyes on God and his hope in God then, Joseph was free to trust God to handle his brothers, ultimately. Again, Grace, is that the nature of your God and your hope in him? Does it have that kind of effect that casts out bitterness and the desire for vengeance? If not, consider whether your view of God is right and your hope genuine. Here's the fourth, the fourth thing, and most significant. For us to see in Joseph's response is that he understood God's sovereign grace to be continually at work, 
even in the most sinful, hurtful, evil actions of his brothers. It wasn't It wasn't just that God loved him so that he could love them. It was that, but it wasn't just that. It was that plus the belief that God was using even those things for some greater good. Far from being absent in his times of greatest distress, Joseph knew that God was working in them for a greater good. Once again, in the face of the fearful pleas of his pleas, P-L-E-A-S, pleas of his brother, Joseph said to them, as for you, one of the most significant phrases in the Bible, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This passage, rightly understood, is the key that unlocks some of the most hope-giving passages in the Bible. It is because of this passage that we can make sense of James 1-2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Well, who does that? (laughs) Why would you do that? Why would you count trials of various kinds all joy? This passage is the key that unlocks this. Similarly, in Romans 8-28, we read, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. How is that possible? How does that work? Well, Genesis 50.20 is the answer. It is the reason that our trials are joy and all things can work together for good because we know that God is working good through them. Grace, hear this, remember this as well. Trials in sin, the trials that we encounter and the sins that others commit against us are instruments of God to accomplish his purposes. There's mystery here, but there's clarity. Perhaps most clearly of all, we see this, we, we see an illustration of the gospel in this. Consider this. Joseph was betrayed. We talked about this in Berea this morning. Does that sound, does that sound like anyone else you know in the Bible? He was innocent but betrayed. He was sold into slavery. He was presumed dead, only to rise to a place of great prominence in order to save the lives of many. Does that sound like anyone you know? Does that sound like anyone else you've heard of? Certainly Joseph had no idea what would happen to him during his imprisonment, just like you don't know what is going to happen to you in your times of struggle and difficulty. Much less did Joseph understand that this would be a picture of the gospel, the picture that it was. Rightly understood then, this changes everything, Grace. To hear the words of Genesis 50, 20 in the various promises of God to work all things for good is to completely flip our trials upside down. Instead of being things to fear and avoid at all costs, we're free now to find in them joy and even rest in the knowledge that God is using them for some greater good for everyone whose hope is in Jesus. This is the life-changing power of hope in God of this kind of God and this kind of hope in his promises. This is what Joseph understood. This is why he was able to talk this way to his brothers. And this is what is available to all of us in Christ. That's awesome. Here's the last thing. The last thing I want to draw to your attention to concerning the nature of Joseph's God and hope in him and the difference it made in his response to his brothers in this third scene 
is that even beyond weeping for his brothers, lacking bitterness towards them, forgiving them thoroughly, and understanding God's goodness to be working in their evil, even beyond all of that, all of that is remarkable, (laughs) but even beyond all of that, Joseph affectionately promised to provide for them and and their families. Beyond merely taking the Hippocratic oath to do no harm to them, he declared, do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them. The ones sinned against became the comforter. The comforter. Comfort, you know what I mean. The one who was sinned against brought comfort. He spoke kindly to them. Do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. How sweet is this? What a picture of the kind of undeserved grace God gives to all who hope in Jesus. Would you remember this about the gospel? Or maybe hear it for the first time? God does not merely promise to wipe our sin slates clean. That would be amazing grace all by itself. But he doesn't merely promise to make us morally neutral, to take away the penalty which we deserve for our treason. He doesn't merely do that. He forgives us and frees us and fills us with Jesus' righteousness. He adopts us into his family. He keeps us. He makes us holy. And he promises us everlasting fellowship with him. Again, when we look at the hardships of life, and especially those caused by others, through this lens, when we look at them vertically before horizontally, it changes everything. That is the why and the what of love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is what it means and looks like to live by faith in the gospel. That brings us to the final scene of the sermon, this passage, and then all of Genesis. The last scene of the entire book, we read of Joseph's last words and his subsequent death. Like his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather, his last wish was to be buried in Abraham's tomb. And like his father, this was significant in that it signified God's faithfulness to him as well, even unto his death and his faithfulness to God until his last breath. But more significantly still, Joseph promised his brothers, God will visit you and he will bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You see what this is? Joseph not only expressed his own faith in God, his own faith in God, for God to make good on all of his promises. But he also urged his brothers to believe in that as well, offering them the sweetest promise of all. God will visit you. God would be with this family. He had promised that. They were his covenant people. God had set his affection on them in a unique way in order that they would be a light and a blessing to the whole world. And yet they were not home yet. This is not where they were meant to be. This was not the land of the promise. These were not yet the blessings of the promise, at least not the fullness of them. There was much more to come. Joseph's dying words were a reminder, however, that that day would come. One day they would go home. God would visit them and he would bring them home into his presence. Such is the promise of God to all who will hope in him through Christ. Hope in him, grace. Hope in him. Take your hope off of whatever else it is on, because all of our hope is in something, and put it on him. 
Hope in him as the orderer and ruler of all that is, as the creator and sustainer of all the earth. Hope in him as the righteous judge of all of our sin and rebellion. Hope in him as the one who set his love upon us while we were still caught in sin and death. Hope in him as the one who provided everything we need to be reconciled to the promised son of Eve, the smasher of the serpent, the ark of Noah, the ram of Abraham and Isaac, the ladder keeper of Jacob, and the promised one of the line of Judah. Hope in Jesus that you may be brought back into the garden for which you were made and in which you will know the everlasting provision and blessing of fellowship with God and where you can glorify and enjoy him forever. Hope in Jesus that God would visit you and lead you home. Hope in this God and tell of him to the whole world.